Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. And my guest today is Jean Komaroff. Uh, she's the Alfred North Whitehead Professor of African and African-American Studies, Head of Anthropology. Uh, she's an Oppenheimer Research Fellow at Harvard University. So we're going to talk about Southern Africa and possibly uh, South Africa and how Euro-America is evolving toward Africa and what that means. So, Jean, welcome. Thank you. If you would tell me a bit about your background and then uh, I want to talk about your writings and your research. Yeah. So I was actually born in Edinburgh, Scotland, because my father was a medical student from South Africa. And in the 19, late 1930s, you couldn't graduate here as a medical doctor. You had to do your first degree work here and then you went to Europe. But he was in Jewish extraction and there were quotas on where Jewish students were allowed, colonial Jewish students, to go to university. So he landed up first in Ireland and then in Scotland on the periphery. So I was born there. He was caught up during the war. He was in the British Army Medical Corps and I was born there soon after the war. Then in the post-war years, many of the colonials were sent back to where they'd come from. And my family, I think, sensing the future that lay in South Africa, were very keen to stay in Britain, but they were not allowed to. So I was raised here in South Africa in a place called Port Elizabeth in the eastern province of South Africa. I was at the University of Cape Town during very activist years in the 1960s. I then went as a graduate student to the London School of Economics which then was itself a very activist place. There were many American draft dodgers there in the 60s. And people like Mick Jagger had very recently been students there and was still very involved in the ferment of the late 60s at the LSE. It was already something we might have called post-colonial, but we didn't have that term there. And after that, I worked for a little bit in Britain, but my husband was also an anthropologist. And uh, there were nepotism clauses that made it difficult for husbands and wives to work in the same departments. So I always had to find a job somewhere outside of the anthropology department. And eventually we moved to the US in the late 1970s. And I've taught there ever since, but I have an intensely involved relationship with South Africa. And during the apartheid years, we did not come back very much. There was an academic boycott in place, and we respected that. But uh, from 1994 onwards, we came here very often. We spend sometimes half the year here, and we've been fortunate enough to be able to do a lot of our teaching here. We bring American students here to be taught, and it's amazing how the transplantation of context, learning about Africa in Africa, not as somewhere in the far distant periphery, how what a difference that makes. And it also was wonderfully educative for American students to see what their world looked like from Africa. So I've always been looking at Africa. What, yeah, can you give a little bit more detail on that? What, what do you mean by that? Like you would talk about South Africa to like the U.S. students or vice versa, or what do you mean? They came to South Africa to do parts of their study on American campuses. First, I taught at the University of Chicago for many years, then at Harvard. So ostensibly, it was African studies. But African studies is, of course, not an isolated phenomenon. It is a study of Africa in the world and the world from Africa. And so a good deal of what we looked at was, you know, the colonial and decolonial history 
of, of South Africa and Africa more generally, and where Africa stood in the world, the changing place of Africa in the world from the late 19th to the 20th to the 21st century. And that involved everything from looking at black diasporas to looking at, you know, the, the rise and the, the waning of colonialism, the Cold War and thereafter, and where Africa stands in the world today in relation to the wider world. But many of the students who came were African-American. Many of them knew their families were part of an African descent and heritage, but they had not really been themselves and often their parents hadn't been. So the relationship was a really interesting one. And South Africa, where we were located, and the U.S. have interesting parallel histories. Uh, they're histories of settler colonialism in many ways. They're histories in which race and industrialization and religion have played huge roles. They're histories of the struggle for civil rights and never fully realized struggle for human rights. And so in many ways, the histories were very comparable. And it was interesting to look at Africa from an American point of view and for an America from Africa. I mean, what were some of the things that the students told you that you were like, oh, that's curious, so that's interesting. Then when they got to South Africa and they were in these universities... What kind of remarks did they make that surprised you? Well, in many ways, they realized, I think, first of all, that they, what they thought they knew of Africa was very misplaced, even students whose families were from here, because South Africa is a very modern country. I mean, it's always been this complex confluence of first and what used to be called third worlds. So it is a place of high industrialization. And many of the things that the students recognized similar to the U.S. You know, there was a sense of an industrial world in which the working class was, and particularly the lower reaches of it, were people of color. There was a struggle for liberation and for equality that had a lot to do with finding places and languages to contest the dominant culture, often in terms of religion and Christianity, but also in terms of a remaking of those Western traditions with African roots. So, African-Americans from the South had a particular idea of what was distinctive about their world, their language, their vision of a society, their renderings of Christianity, their understandings of the modern world. And they had connections with Africa, but African versions of this were different. So it was an interesting way of looking at the history. When we first came to South Africa, uh, the first groups that we brought here were here before the end of apartheid. And it raised interesting questions about formal and informal segregation. In what ways was South Africa a kind of formal, you know, like legally chartered segregationist society? In what ways was America different and yet in many ways still struggling with the aftermaths of history of segregation? What was the nature of civil rights? All of those kinds of questions. What's, what was democracy? What was representative? What was the nature of campus life? In South Africa, campuses at that stage were very political. They were very involved in the struggle for equality and for a democracy. And they were very interested in the role of education in that struggle. It was less so in the US at that time because it was after the time of the civil rights movement and before the rise of decolonization, the more recent concerns with Black Lives Matter and all the things we see going on on campuses in the US now. So, I mean, what was the feedback of the students? Did they feel like so how did their perception change? Did they first feel like, oh, America's the best, and then once they were in South Africa for a bit, they weren't so sure, or you know, I like can see their perception yeah. change? It was very interesting. First of all, I think one of the things that was so interesting, particularly coming from Chicago, for, for where we were for many years, was that many students had not been out of America. They weren't even as worldly as students who maybe you know lived in New York and on the on the coasts of the U.S. They were very much in the center of the heartland of America, and America was the center for them. It was the center of the world. When they got to South Africa, they saw well, first of all this was a former British colony. 
it was much more oriented towards Europe. And even although American popular culture and black history was very, you know, it, it, many, many of black South Africans oriented in that direction and liked American sports and so on. Still, it was a world that was centered much more on Europe and on the rest of the world. You know, America is so large that it sees itself as a world unto itself. It always amuses me that we have world series, world series that are only within America. Yeah, South Africa was always aware that it was made in relationship to the outside world, both the African continent and Europe. And it is intensely curious about the rest of the world, about Asia, about Latin America, about a non-Eurocentric world too. So Americans, and also they began to realize there was a lot of resentment in, 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 in Africa during the time of the you know struggles against colonialism and afterwards. There was a sense that America was not always on the side of the most radical, that there was a history in the Cold War of the undermining of, of African democracies in the initial years when they were assumed to be more maybe oriented towards the socialist bloc and so on. So there was criticism of America as well. But just a sense that Americans were an oddity. Black Americans often were seen as Americans, not African Americans, because they were wealthy and they looked and talked like other Americans. So they were more like white Americans than they were like Africans. And that was an interesting jolt too for students. So there was, there was a kind of awakening, I think, an awareness that America was just one center in the world. And of course, as we moved into the post-colonial, post-apartheid period here, there was very much a sense that this was a new dawning, you know, that there was the rest of the world began to see that Europe was not the be-all and the end-all and the end of history, if you know. China was rising. There were connections to, you know, the socialist world elsewhere. Uh, lots of South Africans have intense connections with Australia and increasingly, of course, with China. So there was a sense that the world was much more complex. It was multilateral already. And that to be able to live in that world, you had to understand more languages, understand different currencies, understand the geopolitics, the possibilities of where you might go as a student, as a migrant worker, or not just in the direction of America or even only Western Europe. And that, I think, is part of this moment where, you know, you asked me about how, what I might mean by the world, Europe evolving towards Africa. And it more sense that the directions of history, you know, the sense that everything began and ended with Western Europe and that we were all marching towards the rest of Africa and the rest of the world would eventually through development, education, democracy converge with that world and that that world had still a bright new future of limitless growth and so on. All of that was beginning to tarnish by the time in the 90s and early 2000s. And American students saw this in a way. They saw it coming here. Because they realized that, for instance, Africa was finding its own way in the world, inventing things anew, often out of scarcity. You know, there was a lot of informal gig economy work here long before this became a term in the North. And there was a sense in which Africa was grappling with problems, problems of overcrowded cities and crumbling infrastructure, but also of a sense of the necessity to be inventive and often not out of scarcity, invent new kinds of institutions. For instance, in Africa, you know, when the colonial powers retreated, they took not only a lot of the wealth, uh, but they left behind very lift by way of infrastructure. Institutions like banking were all in European hands. And what many of these students saw was that these institutions, for instance, in places like Kenya and South Africa, people were learning to use cell phone technology, WhatsApp technology, to do things like bank to deal with credit, to deal with transactions, to deal with remote medical services and so on. So there's a kind of invention, inventiveness. Before we continue, 
I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. M-Pesa, I guess, is like used frequently in Africa. Right. Exactly, exactly. And you know, in Africa, people were SMSing, for instance, texting and using WhatsApp for a variety of, of reasons. Yeah. For ordinary exchanges to mobilizing the Arab Spring, right? I mean, a tremendous amount of political organization, medical outreach, political fundraising, things that we came to in the US that were used here out of necessity and out of the sense that you had to invent the world for yourself at a time when the West was already in some senses in trouble economically. The economies were globalizing. A lot of manufacture had moved from England and the U.S., you know, heavy steelwork, car manufacture, shipbuilding, all of those things were moving out to Asia and China. And the U.S. was beginning to have problems with unemployment, you know, youth problems, a whole set of issues with national economies that have only got worse the last 20 years. And Africa was seeing that, they, that all the answers didn't lie in Europe. And in some ways, Europe was learning certain ways of getting by, by looking at these frontier economies that were making new kinds of arrangements to come to modernity in their own terms from a slightly different history. So all of that is, raises all kinds of insights. And of course, now the center of gravity of much, you know, of the old industrial economy, but even digitalization, you know, the finance capital and so on, the centers are not simply in the old world anymore. They're in Asia, they are elsewhere in the world. I've just come from Singapore, for instance. And um, when I used to go from Singapore to America, it was like going back almost 50 years because Singapore was so on the ball. I mean, they almost phased out the use of cash. Everything was being done transactionally, digitally. There was an extraordinary regulation of traffic. And, you know, you didn't ever pay a parking ticket because it was all centrally organized. Those things were already well on the way in Asia long before they were picked up in Europe because Europe had another history that they had to transcend, you know. Is technology allowing... A much more seamless learning, you know, where, where cultures and countries can learn from what's going on in another, or is it is it still pretty opaque? And you're living in a country that you're not very much aware of what's going on in other countries. No, I mean, you know, African countries had to be to the degree that they were able to with their technologies. They had to be very aware of what was going on elsewhere, because many of the big decisions about investment, about you know, central geopolicy, and so on. During the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, the decisions were taken elsewhere. These were countries that were colonies for a long time. In much of West Africa, these economies are still part of the French monetary system, for instance. So you have to know what's going on elsewhere. But at the same time, in a strange way, the technological development of, of modernity in much of Africa, the Mpesa, for instance, the ways in which banking operates in South Africa, they leapfrogged from a time where, you know, in the, the 60s and 70s, very few black homes actually had access to much modern technology. Television only came to South Africa in the late 70s. And so people often didn't have landlines. The first phones they got were cell phones. So they took it from there. You know, They worked with technology in that way. So there has been, and in that regard, the rise of China as a global 
South, South power. You know, what's happening in Africa now is that development and commerce are happening from Asia to Africa, it's a natural, rather than from the North, Europe and America to Africa, right? And at the advent of China and its idea, you know, of built and road de- infrastructural development, but also immediately smart development. So the idea of smartness, that term, the idea of smart cities, of building cities, there's not much city building on a large, huge scale in Africa, but to the degree that they can think technology, it's very much on the agenda. And there is a very if you like large young people and, and even in rural areas, there's not a fear of technology. They don't get enough of it. There still is revenue shortage. There's electrical breakdown. You, I'm sure you know in South Africa we have power outages and so yeah. on a regular basis, as much from corruption as it is from a lack of, of smart technology. But at the same time, everybody's got great investment in technology. They're not afraid of it. They want to use it. They want to apply it in whatever way they can. And they're getting quite a lot of help. Now, from China, from India, from Turkey, a lot of these, you know, more more Eastern, if you like, noble powers. How do the countries gun shy? Are they afraid this could be a new form of colonialism, except from Asia, or is it, is the interaction very different this time? You know, it's a very interesting question you ask, because colonialism is never once and done, as it were. You know, when we think of colonialism in the modern sense, not now Roman empires or Ottoman empires even, but, you know, the great empires of, of Europe, many of them have been Africa and Latin America and India and so on. We have this idea there was formal colonialism. It came with everything, religion, education, full dress, settlers. And then there was a period of struggle of decolonization and you cast off those the shackles and democracy and, and the futures handed over. Well, of course, it's never fully handed because colonialism is followed by forms of neo-colonialism and also because there are always new empires being built. You know, So, for instance, America was not really an imperial force in Africa. The degree to which it's an empire is a big debate which we can't get into here. But American cultural imperialism and finance and corporate imperialism, of course, is widespread in the world and it's had its, its role in Africa. But so that's another kind of imperialism. It's empire rather than colony. So that doesn't come with all the officials and the hardware and the schools and the buildings and the landscape, but it still comes in ways that are very influential financially and culturally. But the advent of particularly of China and secondarily of places like India, Singapore, that loom loom very large now in the financing and development in Africa. These are new forms of imperialism, and they're complicated because they're not dressed in the same way. The first thing is that South-South relations, organizations like BRICS, which involves, you know, Brazil, Africa, China, Russia, the assumption there is that these are the the formerly colonized world, right? The post-colony or the global South. They're not in any sense all the same. They're very different kind of of beasts, but they're not Western, right? And the assumption has always been there that relations are not, by definition, not imperial in the same way. But in fact, in many ways, of course, they are, and in some ways, in much more inveigling ways, because they come not so much in terms of paternalistic development, but reciprocal aid and business. You know, and the Chinese ideas respecting as we do business with each other. I would just be afraid that, you know, if the leader of a given country is really that uh, they're there for their own aggrandizement. You know, that they'll make it whatever deal would favor them and who cares about the country. So it just seems like it's just tricky yeah. play yeah. they could sell out the country. It's less that because they are no less bound by, you know, there are democracies in Africa. We have the idea that authoritarianism and, and that kind of notion of dictatorship is a particularly African phenomenon. That's a long-dated view. Most of the authoritarian regimes now are in Europe, and we talk about America later, right? I mean, authoritarianism. So many of the rulers in Africa rule 
they they can be autocratic. Many of them have been authoritarian. You know, you had certainly had your authoritarian regimes, but many also in power through elected electoral office, and they seek to do well for their countries as well as for themselves. Not that they're not like our own leaders, oligarchic, but they also are interested in governing and ruling. They need. They, they are interested in building their economies, but they do them now in ways which are much. The Chinese make offers that you can't refuse in a way because they provide the finance. They are the only nations in the world. There's this, a, a form of state capitalism that is not shy, as most of the Western countries are to, these days, of big infrastructural developments in a place like Africa. You know, the, the West increasingly is giving less and less. They give knowledge, but less of this hardware. What they want to do is establish market economies. The Chinese build roofed and branch, and they give the finance as well. I've heard of 99-year leases on ports like Sri Lanka. I mean, I may be totally wrong, but supposedly now that the conditions of the loans have been violated, the port may be under China's control for 99 years. So it seems like there's a... China does give quite freely, but there may be uh, conditions that could really cause it all to go horribly wrong. This is... This is part of the empire of everything from, you know, sort of scarce minerals to oil to diplomatic support and most of all financial entanglement. Uh, but of course, they're not alone in this. The World Bank is also trying to get many African agricultural economies to lease land on long leases to big angry business as the way of developing the continent. Right. So the interesting thing about China is that they're much more wall to wall. They give and they send that money comes, the personnel come, and they give to these countries infrastructural development and also help with security, with running. I mean, what is going on in places like Ethiopia and Kenya now uh, is the transfer of what, what is security technology, ostensibly to make the place safe for business and to protect citizens from crime and so on, but also, of course, to involve possibilities of surveillance and government and authoritarianism and all of this. But of course, the Chinese are not alone in this. They just are particularly successful. And because it's hard to know with Chinese investment in Africa, how much of it is state to state, how much of it are parastatals. And then there's a whole array of other kinds of of private enterprise going on on the continent. So it's a huge presence. But there is competitive presence from India from Turkey. And, you know, for instance, in Kenya, side by side with the new Chinese technologies, there are technologies from France, from Italy, from the UK, even the US. So these countries are doing what they did in the Cold War in a way. They're strategically playing off competitors and getting reasonable deals for themselves. Now, the extent to which they are driven by those deals is a big question that's open to research. Actually, we have a PhD student at Harvard in African and African-American studies who's doing a really interesting study of technology, security technology transfer in East Africa and the extent to which it is driven by Chinese interests or not or shaped by local rulers. Yeah. A very disturbing thing is that there's the export of this surveillance technology that China uses. And you know, certain regimes would be very amenable to saying, ooh, we can surveil all our citizens and control them electronically. And that, I mean, again, that's just from what little I've heard. They're exporting this surveillance technology to Russia and to you know, any other country that, that will take it. They export surveillance technology, but so the West has done that for a very long time too. So the question, you know, I think China certainly... You know, has got deep designs, not only on Africa, but on much of the the South. I mean, they own a good deal of significant assets in America too, but they're not alone in this. And I think we have to be careful not to assume. I think the dangers are there most definitely. And the surveillance technology 
which is often dressed up as a kind of smartness, which makes it sound much more, if you like, user-friendly, much more about development in, you know, the, the fourth revolution age, which is going to make, you know, education better and, you know, quality of life better and the economy more visible and all of this. Of course, India is doing similar things, right? I mean, with their own people, right? I mean, the entire Indian economy now is being rendered digital so that nearly every transaction, even from a street vendor in Delhi, from them to, you know, corporate giants, all registered on one, as it were, platform. So that kind of visibility is everywhere. And there too, in India, as it was when they introduced similar things in Brazil, the potential for surveillance is there, but also for the delivery of benefits. And so this is the problem. I think there is very real danger that that surveillance technology will be used in that way. There also is a good deal of technology which almost serves as a symbolic fetish because many of these systems don't operate in the fullness to which they should be. I mean, if they really operated the way they did, we would be in 1984, as it were, all over but they often don't operate that way. I mean, it's really quite amusing that in my street here in Cape Town, you know, we have what we call the Cape Town Symphony, which are the burglar alarms, which are constantly going off erroneously by accident, being triggered by cats, by being triggered. And so when real break-ins happen, nobody actually knows whether the technology is working or not. But the important thing people feel is the security of having it there. It's got to be visibly there as a deterrent. So there's a lot of this technological stuff that really is about symbolic exchanges, building up a certain kind of credibility and tech-worthiness in the world outside. You know, what's weird is actually, you know, since the U.S. has uh, cut off China's access to certain, you know, high-end chips, you know, the five nanometer chips, et cetera, I wonder if the nations that are considering buying some of these technologies are saying, well, if we buy it, how are we going to get spare parts? How are we going to service it? Maybe we shouldn't. So maybe actually would be a strange side effect deterrent. You know, if I'm whatever the nation of rich and I'm looking at this and I say, yeah, yeah, this looks great, but you know, you guys don't have access to the chips or anything anymore to make sure this we can continue with this over after, uh, let's say, a couple of years. So we're not going to buy it from you in that case. Do you think that could go on? This is the interesting question, is how much the big box items get bought because of the prestige, because they also are sweeteners in relationships for other kinds of things. And whether maintenance down the line is ever considered is another matter. One of the things with Chinese aid is that the roads get built and in, sometimes it, within a couple of years, they're beginning to erode. And then the, now that the technology and all the, 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 the hardware is there to mend them. So this is a very interesting question. We assume that when the technology comes, it always works as it was intended and it doesn't always at all. It has symbolic value and it often doesn't have the lasting maintenance input that it requires. And this is, of course, the terror when you do things like invest in nuclear technology, right? We have a power station here in Cape Town that is aging and nobody is very sure as to its long-term future. Those kinds of investments are investments for almost centuries, right? They're radioactive for a very long time. They have all kinds of deleterious effects. And we always assume there'll be a benign state or a state corporate collaboration that will keep their eye on them. And we've seen in the U.S. that breakdowns occur, leakages occur. Our infrastructure in the U.S. is in a shocking state. And in England right now, I mean, I was just seeing on the news here, central London had a four-hour outage in its underground train system last night. And they're being told by their government to learn to be resilient and to expect such things as power outages. So again, they're evolving towards Cape Town, if I can put it that way. Tonians are much more canny. We've been living now with alternative. We have transformers. We have alternative technologies. We have all kinds of ways of bypassing and conserving. And, and in fact, you know, a more sustainable energy is being worked on at a, at a giddy rate here because people need them. 
we all have candles that we put in the sun so that by night time they, they will work when, when the power fails and so on. So that's the sort of interesting world we live in, I think. And it's interesting how the sorts of things that you see them struggling with in Britain now, you know, Brexit, tribalism, breakdown of democracy, infrastructure, unemployment. Exactly. So what is the, I mean, I know you don't know directly, but what do you think is the perspective of African nations and Asian nations? You know, what do they, do they see the West as committing suicide and they have to take up the reins and kind of uh, chart their own path? What do you see outside of the U.S.? What does, I don't know, like the zeitgeist look like right now? Look, it, it's interesting because the discourse is one thing. You know, I mean, South Africa, for instance, right now is very supportive of Russia, the Ukraine, and, and so on. You know, they, they had that sense that they broke with the West when they became independent. But at the same time, they watch the British Premier League. They are, are very involved with British movies. And there is still the desire to send your kids you may send them to, if their kids are really bright and win scholarships, America, yes, but Britain still is the home. So it's a complicated thing, but there certainly is an awareness of the contradictions of these economies. And the fact that particularly in Asia, I mean, you know, I mean, if you look at the wealthiest corporations in the world, quite a proportion of them now are in Asia. And when you see what happened in 2008 with the whole subprime, you know, global collapse, those countries that were industrialized, that had taken over, if you like, the messy, risky, labor-intensive industrial production from the US and the UK, they're doing okay. So, the, and certainly in places like Singapore, I taught in Singapore for six months, a couple of, in 2019. And when you talk about centers and peripheries there, or you talk about the cutting edge of modernity, they assume you mean Singapore. And, and in many senses, they have bailed Britain out several times in the last couple of decades. So there's a sense of the reverse relationship between center and periphery, just like Brazil in many ways outstripped Portugal. And Portuguese were going to Brazil and Angola to look for work. Now, that both those countries, both Brazil and Angola, you know, the instability of late modern democracies, the proneness towards authoritarianism, the shaky, illiberal nature of much of what we see in our societies makes it very hard to point fingers. You know, China was the miracle of production. China is now undergoing all kinds of economic woes. And they're not only because... Uh, Xi Jinping is, is very authoritarian and politically, as they say, he's more like Mao with money, right? But the point is also that Chinese capitalism with Chinese characteristics look wonderful for a long time, but it has come upon its own internal contradictions. It's started to outsource, you know, it's invested too much in real estate, it's suffered from the lockdown. So it's very hard, in a simple sense, to point fingers. But certainly there is a great, I mean, post colonies have this strange, you know, post colonies are both after the colony and yet still hyphenated, they're still connected to them. There still is a sense in which their cultures have been formed by these societies in many ways, and they still have the side, you know, they bear the imprint of that power relationship. But they're also very critical, and in many ways, they see themselves as continent of the future. And the most significant thing in Africa, I think above all else, is demography. You know, Africa has, Africa and Asia are the only countries now that have youth bulges. You know, they have larger proportions of their population that are aged. Yeah, and that's a not, huge factor. Yeah, Africa, for sure. Uh, South Korea and Japan, no, they're, from what I understand, it's terrible. Just parts of Asia. I mean, I don't know if Vietnam. Parts of Asia, China. Yeah. China, Africa, in some ways, and many demographers and, and long-term sort of macroeconomists have pointed out that in history, when you have this kind of incredible youth surge, it causes all kinds of problems. I mean, you have high infant mortality rates and so on, but they also stimulate growth 
ultimately to survive, they stimulate and they become centers of global production and creativity and so on. So the child, so, so in Africa, the future still is ahead. It has to be ahead. And even although people realize that infinite growth and, you know, development and full employment are, are chimeras that we're never going to reach in any simple sense, they keep saying, you know, Europe has its great years behind it, maybe. Maybe they now have a demographic winter with smaller and smaller. But we can't afford to think that way. We've got to think about the future. The future lies ahead. And even if it means that you've got to migrate to the rest of the world to bring home the goods that will make it possible for you to build a house or start a small business, you will do that. But there still is a sense, I think, that its time has come. It's a sort of slumbering giant. And there'd be, of course, you know, Africa rising was one of the things that was spoken about in the teens, you know, from just sort of 2012 onwards. The Economist magazine, you know, coined this phrase Africa rising because the rate of growth was greater here than anywhere else, partially because growth had been so small, you know, so that anything yeah, do, you, do you think there's going to be all of a sudden a sudden turning point? It seems like things happen slowly and then all of a sudden they avalanche and change. So do you think... How is it? Exactly. They, there's a cumulative point where things shift, right? There's a cumulative point. And one of the things I've been seeing that's very telling to me is that African students have been coming in larger numbers to the most competitive universities. And when they get there, they are extraordinary students because... In the past, of course, the continent produced its modicum of brilliant people, but often they were not connected by the internet and so on to the kind of pathways of global discourse. It was harder for them to, for instance, present themselves as worldly, even although they were incredibly smart and able. Now, through the internet, you can tune into seminars, you can bring yourself up to global speed very quickly. And the competitiveness of African scholars, the rate at which they're getting good positions in not only in academic situations, but, you know, in Wall Street, in corporations and so on, suggests that there's a coming of age. And if you look at things like Nigeria, South Africa, Nigeria is, of course, outpaced South Africa now as an overall economy. But Nigerian banking, you know, building the price of real estate in Lagos is more expensive than it was um, and probably still is than in Manhattan and so on. So there are, there certainly are signs of vibrancy, but there also are, like everywhere else, great inequalities, lots of unemployment, and the constant threat of regime instability and so on. So it's no paradise, but it certainly is the case that it's a multilateral world. And I think people on this continent, you know, they might want certain of the aspects, the fiscal control, the, you know, the historic colonial advantage that still accrues to many European economies, right? That still export huge amounts of African wealth. But at the same time, I think the future you know, is very much now a kind of South-South story. It's going to be a dialogue or a dialectic or an interplay between places like Brazil, China, India, Africa, Nigeria, South Africa. And, and that to me is a very optimistic thing. You know, that When you're in Asia, people say the next century is going to be Asian. And you can certainly feel that if you sit in a place like Singapore. But I think there's a sense in which Africa is part of that story too. And after all, we don't live anymore in simple local silos. We never did. But now, given the nature of transactions, the electronic commons, the transborder mobility of people and ideas of finance, I mean, capital is global. Right? And, and I think that's, you know, it puts Africa, Africa's never not been on the map. It's always been on the map, but in different ways. And I think now it's becoming ever more kind of a significant player in this global ethnic. Okay. In terms of time, I know no one knows, I know. Timelines. Um, what would you say is going to be uh, maybe some of the biggest changes that are observable in the next 10 years? When? Uh, geopolitical changes. Do you think there's going to be, uh, does it look like certain countries are really poised to grow and have a much larger influence? Certain ones, you know, maybe no. on the verge of collapse? 
a lot of this will depend as to what happens in the fiscal economy, what happens with AI, and what happens above all to work. Work is disappearing in lots of the world, and certain countries are becoming the workplaces of the world, and others are becoming post-industrial with populations that are increasingly, if you like, superfluous. So this is a huge, and you know, for between 1945 and relatively recently, we didn't have wars that looked as if they could escalate to global scale. But what we see on horizon right now raise incredibly serious problems. Putin has just announced that he's going to run for another six years, and when he runs, he wins. It's on the board that everyone would be foolhardy to predict. Yeah. But certainly solving the question of what constitutes work and what do populations rendered superfluous and how we recapture, above all else, some kind of meaningful democratic institutions in a world that is so unequal, those, those terms don't make sense anymore. Yeah, it seems like globalization has allowed some countries to exist without really growing their own food. And, you know, I mean, it looks like countries may deindustrialize and go back to the farmlands because, like, like Sri Lanka. Now it's quiet after a week of news. What, what's going on there? Is it deindustrializing? Is it going back to just a, you know, like a quiet backwater with tourism and nothing else? Like, what's happening? There, the, the effect of Chinese capital has been, it, it's a very, very problematic place because I think ordinary people have been unmoored from any rootedness in, in the land. And, and we used to have during the time either that people were on the land or they lived within redistributive democracies, welfare states, Keynesian, you know, polities. But once you stop that, when we stop collecting taxes and redistributing, in my view, we create a population for whom, you know, life is barely livable. And in that situation, people are, they're desperate. They need to move to be able to survive. And the viability of ideas that are, you know, respectful of neighbors that are in any way collective, that have any kind of collective set of values, it's very difficult to nurture under those conditions. I was just looking at the U.S. border on the television this evening, and you look at the desperation of people who are driven into flight constantly, and what this is going to mean for the future of the world. It's going to redistribute the world's populations, God knows. But in the process, it's going to tear nations apart. So these are all problems that, you know, you can't ship them off, as Mr. Sunak in the U.K., is advocating to a place like Rwanda and think you're going to solve the problem of global inequality. So there's inequality within the global system between nations, but within nations also, greater inequality than ever. And that is not sustainable in the long term. It creates out of medievalism where the rich cloister themselves with their private security and the streets are mayhem as people, you know, rising crime rates, a sense that people have to forego the niceties of bourgeois morality to be able to survive. And those are very difficult circumstances to predict and to think about pulling back from the breach. Yeah. So, you know, taming capitalism to some degree is crucial. But whether that's going to happen before the planet, in fact, you know, calls notice on us, that's another matter altogether. Well, very good. I know there's no answers, but it's just interesting to hear about your perspective and to talk about the dynamics of, of some of the things going on in the world. It's interesting to talk about. What's the best place for people to hear more about your thoughts, you know, see speeches by you, uh, read books, etc.? Where can they go? I have a website. Uh, my husband, John, has a website. But also, I mean, my CV, everything is up under, you know, Harvard departments that I teach in. And if people are interested, you know, this book, uh, How Europe is a Theory from the South, How Europe is Evolving Towards Africa, it's quite readable. And even although it was written a little while ago now, 2011, it still seems to me to be reasonably in date. 
So it can be interesting for people. The whole thing then looks at this question of global interactions and the ways in which different dimensions of global culture, politics, and society play off each other in different domains, politics, democracy, health, AIDS, you know, various chapters on zombie urbanism, all of these kinds of things that you could see there. Excellent. Well, Gene, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for coming on the podcast tonight. I really appreciate it. Nice talking to you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.